I'm on the phone with Jenny Pell, permaculture designer, consultant, and educator, and someone who is going to bring the whole world of permaculture here uh, to Radio Free Oz. Nice to have you on the phone, Jenny. Really. Oh, it's great to be here, Peter. So here's the thing. We, we hear this word permaculture a lot now, and, and a lot of people hear it, including myself, and are not really certain what it means. Give us a background in, in the term and, and the work that you're doing in, in this rapidly developing, and I would say, crucial field. Sure. Well, the, the easiest way to look at permaculture is that it's a design approach. It's a design methodology for realizing sustainable and abundant human settlements. And that's kind of a very quick way of saying that we look at all the systems we need to support a really thriving local human economy and biodiverse ecosystem and abundant and redundant water systems right where we live. So it's segues perfectly into looking at uh, post-carbon or carbon-neutral ways of being in the world, whether you're in an urban setting, a suburban, or a rural setting. So we want to provide for our own food and for small livestock, or in a larger setting, larger livestock. We want to have cisterns and ponds. We want to have bee forage and all kinds of products that we're going to make from our immediate environment, and also looking at developing cottage industries that can build skills right in our local community to support all those systems. Well, Jenny, I just want to tell you, I'm sorry to break in, but when I hear you you speaking, it almost brings tears to my eyes. And the reason is, is that I know we're going through a great change in this country. And the kind of structures and the kind of science you're talking about, practical science, I think is going to really lead us into a new Eden. So I just wanted to tell you that. So please please go on. I'm sorry if I broke your train of thought, but it's really important that you know how important this, this this, this really is. Yeah. Well, what's happened, particularly in the Western culture, is that in the last, let's say, three to four generations, the amount of skills that we have lost is it's stunning. Yep. People don't know how to grow food. They don't even know how, if they do grow food, they don't know how to tell when it's ripe and they're supposed to harvest it. They have what I call harvest phobia. They don't know. They'll go to the store and buy kale rather than pick it out of their yard if they've grown it. They don't know how to fix things. People don't know how to even assess how much water that they're using. They just get a water bill and pay it. Right. So there's a great story about um, in Australia now they've mandated uh, water collection off the roof, and people get a little meter in their house that tells them how much water that they're using and how quickly that's going down in their cisterns. Oh. So they found that just like overnight, the minute that that system goes in, people reduce their water consumption up to 50%, just seeing how much water that they're using. That's terrific. It really is. Yeah, so we're looking at, yeah. So we're trying to find like the most practical, sensible, common sense solutions that are very low tech in a very appropriate technology way to get people to be living locally, but living large. So passive solar hot water, passive solar design features for houses, um, finding the, look, looking around the world at what will grow in your particular climate, but come from other places that are delicious and prolific. So, Kiwis, for example, grow in Seattle. Yeah. They're great. You pick them in the fall, but they come ripe in January, February, so you have winter fruits. Wonderful. And you know, what you're talking about is not only very doable, it really smacks of the real American spirit. I mean, as Winston Churchill said, America always does the right thing after doing all the wrong things. And we've done... (laughs) We have done all the wrong things, and it's now time to do the right thing. So let me ask you, I've introduced you both as as a designer and a consultant and an educator. To whom are you consulting? And then I want to find out how you can help educate us in this uh, technique of, grand technique of permaculture. 
Okay, so right now I have, um, in my consulting work, I'm, I'm living in a city, I live in Seattle, and so I get hired to come to people's urban houses, front yards, backyards, side yards, and assess what they can grow there according to their time and their budget and if it faces south or, you know, the different variables on their particular lot. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, a lot of my clients, I'd say 80% of those folks, in two hours I can come on site, whip out a bunch of sketches, make a plant list, and almost give them permission. Like, they're really keen to do it already. Yeah. And they know that they want to do it. And a lot of it's about, I specialize in edible perennials and vertical food and building trellises and arbors yeah. and some of those things. And then some of them will want to go on to put in some cistern systems, like a cistern, a water catchment system, or they want to put in um, a rainwater garden. So we have salmon in our waterways here in Seattle. And when the rainwater washes all the oily grime off the streets, it really damages the salmon runs. And so Seattle Public Utilities is partnering all over the city to put in rainwater gardens that will infiltrate water into the soil and bioremediate it that way. Bioremediate. Yeah, it's just bioremediated, which means cleanse it through through natural biological processes within the earth. Is that correct? That's right. And if you look at mycoremediation, which is through fungi, which is another way of doing it, is that the, the fungi actually is the main decomposer in our ecosystems. The mycoremediation piece, um, they actually, the, my, the fungi can break down the carbon bond, and so it will break down the going product. Um, byproducts. So we do a lot of fungi stuff in our systems as well. Well, it's a it's a mushrooming so, business, so to speak. No, it's I mean, a mushrooming <laughs> business, indeed it is. And guess what? They mushrooms really like to grow on coffee grounds. So in Seattle, it's perfect. Really, and in, in um, fact, when I don't throw mine out in time, I've gotten large <laughs> crops of mushrooms. I won't eat them because I'm afraid. Right. Now, one other thing, I'm trying to get a lot in a short time, and we're going to have many other sessions with you. But education. Where can people okay, so I, go? Yeah, what do you do, and where can people go to get a taste of this? Okay, so I do public speaking, lectures, and slideshows. I teach workshops, sometimes one day, sometimes two day workshops. Mm-hmm. And I have one coming up the end of July on passive solar hot water, mm-hmm. which you can do in Seattle nine months of the year. I have, um, I'll be teaching a workshop on edible hedges Ooh. and how to grow different fruiting shrubs that some of them are medicinal, some of them are just edible, some of them are for wildlife, and ones that also um, add soil tilth. I'm also working on a new lecture series on what I'm calling the, it's a storytelling lecture on peak. So we're coming to this peak moment of peak oil and peak water and peak population and all these different peaks or sort of a confluence of peaks happening. And I'm helping people to look at it Rather than the same same graph of this huge precipitous incline up the energy ascent last hundred years, what does it look like down the other side? And if we can start to participate in a permaculture world where you're planting food and collecting water and understanding how ponds work and looking at your systems in a different way, the profile out the other side of the peak is very different. So how do I get people to participate in the storytelling by living the story themselves right now? Very good. And in fact, uh, I want to make sure people know where to go to get your website is permaculture.com. And nope, my website no, is permaculturenow.com. I read it wrong. Permaculture now, not just permaculture. Now is when we need it. Well, permaculture now, not permaculture later. 
Perfect. I, well, before I go, I just want to mention that the edible hedges, I wish we had edible hedge funds so we could eat those bastards up who have been taking us for a ride. But that's another that kind of good. permaculture. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll be back. Jenny Pell, permaculture, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Here's a nice little coincidence um, reported by the London Telegraph. It seems the chief executive of BP sold $3 million worth of his shares in the fuel giant just weeks before the Gulf of Mexico oil spill caused its value to collapse. Tony Hayward cashed in about a third of his holding in the company one month before a well in the Deepwater Horizon rig burst, causing an environmental disaster. And why don't they mention again and again, killing 11 men? And why isn't there a memorial for them? Mr. Hayward, whose pay package is about $8 million a year, then paid off the mortgage on his family's mansion in Kent, which is estimated to be valued at more than $2.5 million. That's where he's going to go when the crowds with the torches come looking for him. There was no suggestion that he acted improperly or had prior knowledge that the company was to face the biggest setback in its history. His decision, however, means he avoided losing more than a million dollars when BP's share price plunged after the oil spill six weeks ago. Well, you know what they say. If you can't drill it, spill it. One of the nice things about being in a an election year, it seems that every year is an election year, by the way. I mean, you know, we're always talking. People are always running for something. It, it, you get you get a chance to really get into some very interesting characters, like our certifiable Senate, senatorial candidate in Kentucky, Rand Paul. Now, he wants to build a fence along the U.S. border. Nothing unusual in that, is there, David? No, no. Senator Dang fence yeah. is right with him. Yep. Yeah, that, that's how, except that Paul wants the fence to be electric, and he wants it built underground. Wait a minute. A fence underground? Yeah. I yeah. don't. I, I have a, a well, we, You know the way people are training dogs now where they put those special collars on them, and if they go past a certain place, there's wires they underground. They electrocute the dog. It they falls over. The dog. So yeah, I right. guess he wants to put collars on potential illegal aliens, undocumented people. Nice collars probably, you know, mm-hmm. with a little style. He's, he dresses well, kind of. And then if they try to come across the border, oh, que lastima, and they go back home. Uh-huh. Right, How so. do you get the collars on the Mexicans? Hold on. Okay. Among the variety of proposals to stem illegal immigrants, uh, the construction of an underground electric fence appears to stand alone on the extreme. I think that Huff is being kind here. There is little contemporary evidence of other Republican officials proposing such a project, even among the most conservative of the bunch. Indeed, when approached in the halls of the Senate and asked about the idea, though not told who proposed it, National Republican Senate Committee Chair John Cornyn, they don't come any right-winger than him, assumed it was a joke. Well, you know what? It is a joke. So in a speech in downtown Paducah, Kentucky, Paul pegged the cost of his quixotic idea somewhere between 10 and 15 million dollars. That's cheap. I got to say. Small change. Yeah. The benefits of an underground fence, he argued, were that it would not have the symbolism of a Berlin Wall-like structure and it would be considered less offensive to Hispanic voters who are already fleeing the country. Less offensive to Hispanic voters who are already fleeing the country. I don't get where this man's coming from. No, he I isn't have... paying his syntax. 